All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to the assembled devotees. All glories to Sri Guru and Goranga. All glories to Srila Prabhupada, Nama Om, Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya, Bhutale, Sri Mati Bhakti Vedanta Swami, Nitinamani. Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Paterni Nivasesis and Nivani Paskajahade Saterni. Vandeham Shri Guru Shri Utapada Kamalam Shri Guru Vaishnavam Shashi Rupam Sagrajatam Sahagana Raganatam Vitam Sam Sajivam Sadvoitam Sadvadutam Parijana Sahita Krishna Chaitanya Devam Shraddha Krishna Padam Sahagana Lalita Shri Vishakam Vitamscha Vanchakalpachi Vishcha Kipasim Vibhutapti Tanam Pavani Vyavaishnamevanamoma Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya June 9th, 2016 in Tawako. New Jersey, reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 2, Chapter 2, The Lord in the Heart, Text 5. Tirani kim patina santi dishanti viksham Naivan gripa parabrita sadito pyasuyan Rudha guya kemajito vatino pasanam Kasmad bhajanti kavayo danadur madandan Tirani Torn clothes, Kim, weather, Pati, on the road, Na, not, Santi, there is, Dishanti, given charity, Biksham, alms, Na, not, Eva, also, Angripa, the trees, Parabrita, one who maintains others. Sarita, the rivers, Api, also, Ayushyan, have dried up, Rudha, close, Gudha, caves, Kim, weather, Ajita, the Almighty Lord, Avati, give protection, Na, not, Upasanam, the surrendered soul, Kazmat, what for? Bajanti, flatters, Kavaya, the learned, Dana, wealth, Dur Mada Andan, too intoxicated by. <coughs> so, this is a very important verse. Translation Are there no torn clothes lying on the common road? Do the trees which exist for maintaining others no longer give alms and charity? Do the rivers being dried up no longer supply water to the thirsty? Are the caves of the mountains now closed? 
Or above all, does the Almighty Lord not protect the fully surrendered souls? Why then do the learned sages go to flatter those who are intoxicated by hard-earned wealth? So, of course, this is interesting. Uh, today, do we find torn clothes lying on the common road? So many. So many. In India and India, but here? Here also they dump in the garbages. In the garbage, you'd have to go through the dumpsters. What about the trees here in New Jersey? Are we getting any fruits from the trees here? Some trees, not that Not many. In India, there are so many. Even in most places in India, it would be hard to find just fruit trees. (laughs) Not on the road. Depends where you go. I mean, this is very applicable for Hawaii. So in Hawaii... There's wild avocado and mango and coconut and guava and banana trees growing everywhere. So people don't buy them? You don't need to. I mean, we we know one devotee who spent one year intentionally living homeless, and uh, she said that she gained weight in that year, and she was just, you know, picking the fruits from the trees. But uh, Robert said Hawaii is a remnant from another age. But nowadays, in most of the world, you're not going to be able to live off the fruits from the trees. And do the rivers being dried up no longer supply water to the thirsty? So there's not very many rivers you can drink from nowadays. Right? Because of the rain's polluted. They're all... They're all... Maybe put that on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so there's still a few places. I mean, when I was 16, I went on a, a youth tour in uh, Jasper Banff National Park in Canada, and they said you can drink from all of the rivers, but in most places you can't. You cannot do that. Uh, you, a lot of the rivers you can't even bathe in; they're so polluted. You know? Caves in the mountains now close. Of course, you have to be where there's mountains, and then. I, I heard, uh, I, I think Radhanaswamy talked about how he had stayed in mountain caves in the Himalayas and now the government closed a lot of them. They didn't want the sadhus staying there. So we might argue that these principles that Sukadeva Goswami is telling us are not really valid in 2016. But he's giving those ex- examples, of course, to his li- listeners at the time. So we would probably have to give different examples and then he says, uh, does the Almighty Lord not protect the fully surrendered souls? So that's, that is still valid in 2016, even though uh, we don't find everywhere fruit trees and clean rivers and, and mountain caves. Okay, this is a long purple. And uh, what I'd like to do is actually first read the very last part of the purport. And the reason I'd like to do that is otherwise it's going to seem that the whole purport is just about renunciates and everybody or most people listening will think it has nothing to do with them, and therefore they won't listen to any of it. So, uh, at the very end of this purport, Srila Prabhupada said, everyone can become a fearless and honest person if his very existence is purified by discharging the prescribed duty for each and every order of life. One can become fixed in one's prescribed duty by faithful oral reception of the Vedic instructions and assimilation of the essence of Vedic knowledge by devotional service of the Lord. So here in the very last two sentences, Srila Prabhupada talks about the general application of the principle of this verse to everybody, whether they're brahmachari, grahasta, vanaprasta, sannyasi, brahmana, sancha, vaisha, shudra. 
All right, so now we're going to read the whole purport. And the, most of the purport is about the renunciates, so particularly the vanaprastas and the sannyasis. Because although the brahmachari is a renunciate, the brahmachari is living where? In the Gurukula. And who's taking care of the brahmachari? The teacher. The teacher, right. The, the traditional brahmacharis were children and teenagers. They, they weren't adults. And they were being cared for by uh, their spiritual master and his family. Gurukula was a family. And the whole village was, of course, just like today we have taxation, which is maintaining the schools. So they had charity. Of course, charity was given by the Ksatriyas as part of taxation. And also the brahmacharis would beg from door to door, and that's how the schools were maintained. Whereas the vanaprastha and the sannyasi is simply traveling without any kind of occupation and without any apparent um, other person who's maintaining them or means of livelihood. Uh, it's my request. Rather than reading this long purport, maybe you could give a general explanation in your um, well, we we can we if you want me to do that instead of reading the purport. Um, well, first the first thing that Chila Prabhupada talks about in this purport is that the renunciate is not meant to be a parasite, and by parasite he says that a parasite is someone who takes without giving anything in return. So that's the technical definition of a parasite. They're simply a taker. And Prabhupada talks again, he doesn't use the word symbiosis, but he talks about a symbiotic relationship where the householders maintain the renunciates and the renunciates give something in return. And he says that it's the duty of all of the householders in society to maintain those in the renounced order. So we already talked about the brahmacharis, that the students were maintained in the school. And again, we're doing this in, modern, in, in almost all, if not all of the cultures of the world today, people maintain the schools generally through taxation. So uh, there may be some countries that don't provide education like this, but as far as I know, all the countries of the world, the government taxes the citizens, and then the government pays to provide free education. And so... Colleges here is so expensive. Colleges are expensive. But, in, of course, college is not considered a uh, necessity of education. It's becoming so, but if you go back, you know, some decades people used to be able to get a very decent job just with a high school education. So providing education up through age 18 would be sufficient for most people. I mean, nowadays, what's happened is practically you have to have a master's degree for many. You know, it's going up. The requirements are going up. The, the time having to be spent in school is going up. You have to get a bachelor's degree practically, you know, just to be a, a, a waitress. But <laughs> if formerly it wasn't like that. Even people who dropped out of school at 16 or 14, you know, previously could get very good jobs. But the principle, the principle, you know, these things are always changing, but the, the principle that the householders of society, the people who were paying income tax to the government, were supporting the students, who were, of course, supposed to be brahmacharis, is still operative in the world. Now, the concept that the householders are supporting retired people is also somewhat operative, because in many countries, uh, not in all countries, but in many countries, when people are retired, they can get some pension from the government, which is also coming, again, from taxation. And in Vedic times, the Ksatriyas would indeed give money not only to the Brahmanas who ran the Gurukulas, but they would also give money to the sannyasis and the Vanaprastas in charity, and that money was coming, of course, from taxation. So I think it was a little bit more informally done. It wasn't done according to all these you know, specific laws, but the same principle was there. 
And then the vana prasthas, the sannyasis, they might also go out and beg directly from the householders, as the brahmacharis would do, in addition to what they were receiving indirectly through taxation. But they're supposed to give something back. Now, we understand that the students are planning to giving, give something back when they grow up. And the, how, what are the vana prasthas and sannyasis supposed to give, up, give back? And Prabhupada says here... Um, the first duty of a person in the renounced order of life is to contribute some literary work for the benefit of the human being in order to give him realized direction towards self-realization. So you were asking yesterday, why didn't Prabhupada translate everything? And I said, he left something for us to do. And one of the things that Prabhupada enjoins, particularly those in the renounced orders, the Vanaprasthas and the Sannyasis, uh, by the way, some of the people who we call brahmacharis in Iskand are actually in the Vanaprastha ashram you know, the older brahmacharis who are preparing for sannyas. They're really not in the brahmachari ashram anymore. <laughs> they're in the vanaprastha ashram. So they're meant to make some literary contribution. So this would mean translating the works of others, writing their own books, or some combination of both. And Prabhupada encouraged, of course, all the devotees to write. Prabhupada said, every day just write, right? At least one or two lines of something Prabhupada encouraged of all the devotees. And general preaching work. Well, that's in fact what Prabhupada says here. Amongst the other duties in the renounced order, the foremost duty discharged by them was to hold learned discourses amongst themselves, Prabhupada talking about the Goswamis, at Sevakunj Vrindavan. For the benefit of all in human society, they left behind them immense literatures of transcendental importance. So, and he says, similarly, all the acharyas who voluntarily accepted the renounced order of life aimed at benefiting the human society and not at living a comfortable or irresponsible life at the cost of others. So he gives two duties of those in the renounced order to produce transcendental literatures and to hold learned discourses, especially to hold learned discourses among like-minded persons. So these are the two main duties of those in the renounced order for the benefit of human society and not that a renunciate is just supposed to live at the cost of others without giving anything in return then they are a parasite. No one is supposed to do that. Yeah. Of course, of course, in some way to help others. In some way to help others. No one is supposed to just take care of themselves, which is what Prabhupada talks about at the end of this purport. Uh, but let's get to that, uh, just go through this, and then we'll get to that. And Srila Prabhupada is saying that the, if you can't give any contribution, then you shouldn't beg. Very emphatic. You know, if, if you if you can't if you can't give any contribution, then you have no right asking for charity. You're supposed to ask charity because you're giving some contribution. Of course, we have uh, people like Madhavendra Puri who never begged for himself. He did beg for Gopal, but he didn't beg for himself. Now, also, I think Prabhupada says something very interesting here about renunciation. He says that when when a man becomes a mendicant willfully or by circumstances, so sometimes people think that those who become in the renounced order by circumstances are not real renunciates. And we, we've seen this many times, that devotees will say, well, the reason that you took sannyas, the reason you took vanaprastha is, you know, this happened or that happened. Yeah, my family life was not good. My family life wasn't good, my business failed. And, but Srila Prabhupada... And I was forced to take. Srila Prabhupada was pushed into the vanaprastha order by his business failing and his wife not wanting to cook anymore. So, you know, we have Maharaj Anga, who was pushed into the Vanaprastha order by his son being a bad son. Vidura, who was pushed into the Vanaprastha order by the harsh words of Duryodhan. So the devotee may take that the certain life circumstances are Krishna speaking Maharaj Parikit, 
the whole Bhagavatam, Maharaj Pariket, was pushed at a young age to uh, renounce the world by the curse of Sringi. So whether one just simply decides, this is the time and I will do it, or whether life circumstances are such that one can see the hand of the Lord pushing one, uh, that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean... it. It doesn't make one's renunciation more or less bona fide. That's not the point. And therefore, Prabhupada says, whether it's willfully or by circumstances, he must be a firm faith and conviction that the Supreme Lord is the maintainer of all living beings everywhere in the universe. That is what makes one in the renounced order, not the means by which one entered the renounced order, but whether or not one has this firm conviction. And... uh, he says, a common master looks to the necessities of his servant, so how much more would the all-powerful or opulent Supreme Lord look after the necessities of life for a fully surrendered soul? And Srila Prabhupada talks about how the mendicant could live even in the forest. He says, Krishna will instruct the tigers not to eat him. And he gives the example of Haridas Thakur, who was protected from that snake in his cave. And then Prabhupada talks about the whole ashram system. He says, according to the regulations of the Sanatan Dharma Institution, one is trained from the beginning to defend, depend fully on the protection of the Lord in all circumstances. So this is the training given in the Brahmacharya ashram. The Brahmacharya ashram is not meant just to learn uh, how to get specific training for a livelihood. It's, it's interesting, you know, in our Gurukulas in ISKCON in the early days, not anymore, but in the early days, we didn't give any training for a livelihood at all. <laughs> Whereas that is, of course, one of the main purposes of education everywhere in the world. But it's not only for that. It's not only to get specific training for a livelihood. It's also to teach one how to be a surrendered servant of the Lord. Because whether one is in the Grahastavanaprasta or Sanyas Ashram, one has to depend only on the Lord. And then Srila Prabhupada says here also something quite interesting. The path of renunciation is recommended for acceptance by one who is fully accomplished and fully purified in one's existence. So one is not supposed to take up these renounced ashrams as, a, as so much a means of purification, but as a result of already having been purified, which is one of the main reasons why it is highly recommended that most people before going into the Vanaprastha ashram go through the Grahastha ashram. And that most people before going to the Sanyas ashram go through the Vanaprastha ashram. And that most people before going through the Grahastha ashram go through the Brahmacharya ashram. <laughs> so the idea is that you don't just immediately just run away. You know, we have some examples. Of course, Sankaracharya took sannyas at 8 and Madhvacharya took sannyas at 12 with offering all respects to them that this is not the standard operating procedure. The standard operating procedure is you're trained, when you're a child and a teenager, you're trained not just in mathematics and English and science and history, but you're also trained in dependence on the Lord and purification. Then as a grahasta, you also depend on the Lord. Right? Sukadeva Goswami says, don't go to those puffed up with hard-earned wealth. You know, generally the grahasta is thinking, I have earned this money by my intelligence, by my cleverness, by my hard work. I have earned this money. This is my money. And I am giving it to you out of the goodness of my heart. But the actual grahasta who's trained as a brahmachari doesn't think like that. They are thinking that I am not the doer. They're not thinking I'm the doer. 
you have a right to perform your prescribed duty, but you're not entitled to the fruits of action. Never consider yourself to be the cause of the results of your activities and never be attached to not doing your duty. So the householder is thinking, I'm doing my duty. And Krishna is maintaining me. And we see a person can work hard and yet lose everything. We see this, and we see some people, they don't work hard and they get everything. Obviously, there's not a one-to-one correspondence between one's cleverness and one's hard work and how much money one makes. Isn't that a fact? Everybody knows this. So we tell the children, it's your education, it's your hard work, that's what's going to make you rich. But we all know that this is not the whole story. It's part of the story. Part of the story. But it's not the whole story. The whole story is there's the hand of God. Daivinitrena. There's the supervision of God. There's one's destiny. There's the will of the Lord. There's the supervision of the devas. They're all involved in our prosperity. And without the sanction of the Lord and the devas, you can work and work and work. How many people do we see, you know, poor people who work two, three jobs? Yeah. You know? Just to get basic, basic, basic necessities of living in poverty. So the Grahasta also has the mood of dependence on the Lord. Just like we showed in our slides last night, you know, one Grahasta where Radhakrishna are giving directly and one where Radhakrishna are giving through the briefcase. But whether Radhakrishna are giving directly or they're giving through the briefcase, still Radhakrishna are giving. They're not somebody else who's giving. It's still they who are giving. So the Grahasta has all this mood that the Lord is my protector, the Lord is my maintainer. Just because you have a house with locks on the door and a burglar alarm and a fence around it. You know, we uh, travel often to South Africa and there's a... South Africa's an amazing place. Wonderful climate. They have no natural catastrophes in South Africa. They don't have earthquakes, they don't have tsunamis, they don't have volcanoes, they don't have hurricanes, they don't have tornadoes. They don't have any of those things. And the country is rich in natural resources. Of course, everybody knows about gold and diamonds, but so many gems and and minerals. And much of the country, they can grow food all year, and different climate zones, they can grow all the food they could possibly need. I mean, it's beautiful. Many parts of the country are just Cape Town, for example. Absolutely gorgeous. Definitely rivals some of the most beautiful places in the world, like Maui. But they have very high crime due to decades of government mismanagement and, 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 and unrest. Very, very high crime. And so most of the householders in most of the country, they have these big walls around their house and on the top of the walls they have broken glass so people can't climb over it and electrified fences and you know several, like um, Bomasura had all these layers of defenses against anyone stealing the princesses that he stole. So it's like that. Even the ordinary householder has all these layers. You know, I was visiting one family and I wanted to chant Japa outside. So they had their main door and then their security door, you know, the gate door. And for the gate door, they had three or four locks. You know, they got out this big key ring, like you'd see some big janitor would get out for a huge complex, you know, just for their house. And they're opening all these locks on the metal door. And then they opened some more locks on the other door. And there was a big wall around the property. Again, big wall with an alarm and glass and all these things. 
Yes, many times guards and dogs. And as soon as I got out, they locked me out. <laughs> they weren't confident with the wall. Even to be between the wall and the house, the house had to be locked. So went, oh my goodness. I feel like I'm in a fort in the middle of a war. And uh, I remember visiting one family and they said, well, before we built our wall, we were getting burglarized three times a year. And another family, they said, we have dogs, and the dogs, uh, they, they came and they poisoned the dogs. And I thought, what's the use of the dogs? What is the point, you know? They said they poisoned the dogs, and they cut through the electric wire, and they knocked off the broken glass, and they climbed over the wall, and they stole all of our jewelry and money and electronics anyway. So even if you have all of these, it was, it was very interesting to me, especially that they poisoned the dogs. Particularly that they poisoned the dogs intrigued me, because I thought to take care of dogs, it's a big job. You know, just to maintain a wall and a barbed wire, that's not such a big job, but to take care of dogs. You have to feed them, you have to walk them, you have to clean up, up after them, you have to take them to the veterinarian. So many things to maintain. And they, of course, they're not going to keep like some little poodle, you know. They're keeping a great big German shepherd dog. And what is the point? All the thieves have to do is take some poisoned meat and throw it over the wall and the dogs eat it and finish. And, and so well, if, it's so, if it's a defense that is so easily breached to take so much trouble, why are they doing this? <laughs> so my point is even the householders they know my protection, my maintenance is coming from God I can make all these plans for protection, I can make all these plans for maintenance, but it's in the hands of God, and then the Vanaprastha is between the Grahasta and the Sannyas or between Brahmachari and Sannyas so then one gradually detaches, right? one retires from one's source of income particularly even in modern society if we say someone is retired we mean they're not working anymore. So uh, here especially Sukadeva Goswami is talking about income. So the main thing the Vanaprastha retires from is income. Well, but that, but it's still, it's different when you're depending on savings and when you're depending on savings and income. It's not the same, isn't it? Right? Remember when my mother here was put into a nursing home? And she said, the one thing I'm worried about is that I'll live so long that my savings won't cover the fee. They say that's everyone's number one worry, that they'll run out of money before they run out of life. So, you know, when you have a savings, plus you're putting money into it from work, then you feel even if some goes out, well, at least some is coming in. But when you retire, you know, only something is coming out. Nothing is coming in. And of course, in the traditional Vanaprastha, you gave everything to the grown children and you went to live in the forest without a pension. And we're not suggesting people do that in 2016 uh, because I'm afraid we'd have a discussion here with Sukadev Goswami about the trees and the rivers and the caves uh, for the Vanaprastas. So, but the, the principle is there that in Vanaprastha you're increasing your external obvious dependence on the Lord and then sannyas completely of course again uh, our modern sannyasis don't live like Madhavindapuri generally speaking you know, Madhavindapuri was just traveling without a companion huh? 
he's traveling without a kiprah, but also talks about this. Uh, a sannyasi should always live alone without company, Prabhupada says, and he should be fearless. He should never be afraid of living alone, although he is never alone, because the Lord's in everyone's heart. Of course, Srila Prabhupada did that uh, as a vanaprastha. Prabhupada lived alone and homeless about four or five years after Prabhupada took vanaprastha. He lived uh, homeless. He was just staying at different people's houses and different temples, and he was literally counting his paisa. He hardly even had rupees. He was writing back to Godhead and getting it printed, and he was able to get the facility at Radha Damandar. You know, but most of our, of course, once Prabhupada started ISKCON, he didn't live alone. He traveled with a servant and a secretary and, and so many things in order to manage the society. But we don't find so much that externally that most of our sannyasis are living like this. We don't find externally most of us sannyasis are just traveling alone and barefoot with only a water pot and a danda. We don't find externally most of our vanaprastas. I mean, I've been in the vanaprasta order for 20 years, but I don't say to you, oh, Prabhu, I don't want a room upstairs. I'll just sleep out in the yard. Right? I mean, technically, according to Bhagavatam, the vanaprasta is not even supposed to have a cave for themselves. They have a cave for the fire, for the sacred fire because they're still doing yagya, the sannyasi's not even doing yagya, and they sleep out in the open. So technically speaking, we're not following these rules. You know, people talk a lot about varnashrama. Who is strictly following these rules of varna and ashrama? You know, with, with, with all apologies <laughs> to the, the, those who are preaching varnashrama, varnashrama, who is there? who is strictly following all these rules of Varna and Ashram. So maybe there's a few here and there. But frankly, it would impede our preaching, wouldn't it? It would be an uh, impediment to our preaching movement if we were all strictly following all of the codes of Varna Ashram in 2016 in most of the world. Maybe in some places, in some tropical places. You know. so everybody has to go through one plus ten sannyas. Mm. See, like, I, I don't feel inclination, I'm 70 year old. Aren't you both vanaprastas? Kind of vanaprastas. We live at home, wife, children. Well, that's why I'm saying kind of. All the ashrams are kind of. How many of our brahmacharis are brahmacharis? You know, how many? I mean, some. We have some. But the majority of us. But what is the principle? What is the main principle? To be attached to Krishna and detached. Exactly. Exactly. That is the main principle. So I was just reading a nectar devotion where Prabhupada said, You don't even have to designate yourself as Brahman, Ksatriya, Vaishya, Shudra, Brahmachari, Grihasta, Vanaprasta, Sannyasi. He said, There's no necessity. Just stay in whatever position you are and simply serve Krishna and everything will become perfect. So although we would like to institute as many of the principles of Varna and Ashram, as are applicable in the modern time. We don't want to institute principles that are not applicable. But we want to, as as far as possible, we should try to institute some sense of the varnas and the ashrams. But the main thing we want to have is this dependence on the protection and the maintenance of the Lord. These are two of the principles of surrender. And one should be as appropriate for one's ashram and one's varna. So to whatever extent we can apply these principles of Varna and Ashram because dependence on the Lord is going to look different for a grihasta and for a sannyasi. Dependence on the protection of the Lord is going to look a little different. The grihasta needs to build a griha, otherwise how are they a grihasta? 
The sannyasi doesn't have to build a griha. But both are dependent on the protection and the will of the Lord. And that is the main... But that, it will look a little different. So all of us need to apply this principle. Everybody, Prabhupada says, everyone. Everyone needs to apply this principle of becoming fearless by depending on the protection and the maintenance of the Lord. How that manifests externally depends on our individual situation. What is our occupation? What is our age? Are we married? Are we not married? Are we living in the temple? Are we living at home? Uh, That may vary, but the principle should always be there. And if there's something in our life that is helping us to become more fearless, then we should increase it. And something in our life that is hindering us from being more fearless, then we should decrease it. Yes? I have seen this and yes, this is Yeah, yeah, he goes barefoot whenever he can. Yeah. It's not, not like in an airport, he can't go barefoot. They'll, yeah, they'll throw him out. And yeah, he'll, even if, they, if someone gives him a bed, he sleeps on the floor. And he uses his bed to dry his clothes. So he was telling me that the way he does his laundry is he just puts his clothes on the bottom of the shower. And while he's taking a shower, he cleans it with his feet. Then he wrings it out and lays them over his bed. And he says then in a few hours they're, they're dry. That kind of renunciation is necessary if you are depending on the Lord and uh, on His own mercy that everything comes from Him. And so we know by principle and apply also. And fearlessness also that Krishna is there to protect. Is that necessary to renounce? And that's a really individual... Um, I mean, frankly, that's not anything renunciation compared to the sannyasis back in Mahaprabhu's day. So we look at that and, and get scared and say, oh, do I have to do that? But it's, that's really nothing. The sannyasis from even 300 years ago, they'd look at, at Hanumat Prasak Swami and say, oh, you're using a computer, you're traveling by plane. You know, what is this? Even Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati was criticized for using a car. Hmm. And shoes and dress. And, and shoes and dress, exactly. So that, that's not so much the point. I remember when I was, I, I think, about 20 and the fourth canto had just come out, there was a description of the Vanaprast order and about Vaidarbi, how she became a Vanaprast along with her husband, King Malayadwaj, and said how she had to wear old torn clothing. Here, Sukadeva Goswami is talking about torn clothing. She had to wear torn clothing, and her hair was matted. So I became very distressed, and I went to our GBC Rupanuga Prabhu at the time, and I said... uh, are we going to have to wear torn clothes and mat our hair? Yeah, I was 20 years old. <laughs> and dreadlocks weren't a fashion at that time. And he said, no, 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 don't worry about that. And, and it was very interesting, you know, when we actually took up the Vanaprasta order, so I was thinking, well, maybe I should get dreadlocks. That's what it says in the Bhagavatam, that the Vanaprasta woman is supposed to have matted hair. 
And then, you know, I did some research, I actually did some research into it, and maintaining dreadlocks is more trouble than maintaining regular hair. You know? And then I thought Ben Prabhupada wouldn't like it. So like, long, what does it mean? matted hair, when they have this matted hair. You've seen, it's a fashion now. Oh. Yeah, you haven't seen? No. What matted hair that really means, what I feel, is that they don't clean uh, and then gradually they get... So well, that the, could be, but Ram and Lakshman, when they were in the forest, they had their hair matted. Yes. So it was probably a very similar process. And you see a lot of the babas in India. It's not like it's just a big blob. They they do what they do now in the hairdressing salons. They take different strands and they put some kind of sap in it to mat it. Yes, and then you see them winding it around their head and, and so forth. And this has become now a fashion we talk so much about Varnashram, uh, but Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said it is the goal of Varnashram is to go to the, uh, say, heavenly planets and enjoy their higher. Mm. And he says, rejected very first, second, uh, like on the, yes. you know, this Sadhya Sadhana Nirnaya, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Ramananda Rai discussion. Yes. The ultimate goal of Varnashram is not to serve Krishna. Yes, well, Karma Kanda Varnashram. Uh, you simply, you're seeing your actions as part of the universal body of the Lord. And yes, the purpose is to go to heaven. Then karma yoga varnashram, the purpose is to merge into the Brahman or to attain the Paramatma. So we can use some of the principles of karma yoga varnashram, just like we use some of the principles of jnana yoga and dhyana yoga. We don't cover our bhakti with karma yoga, jnana yoga or dhyana yoga, but not, they're not forbidden. We have anyabhilasitasunyam jnana karma anavritam. So they cannot cover our bhakti. Karma, jnana, and dhyana cannot cover our bhakti. However, karma, jnana, and yoga, they are all used in bhakti. We do activities, we study philosophy, and we meditate. It is subordinate. It is subordinate. But we exhibit our bhakti through activities. We exhibit our bhakti through study of philosophy and we exhibit our bhakti through meditation. So we're not rejecting activity, philosophy, and meditation. It is in relation to bhakti. They are all part of bhakti. We cannot say they are part of yoga, dhyana, exactly. dhyana. Exactly. They are part of bhakti. Well, they can cover bhakti if used improperly. So if someone says, before you can start bhakti, you have to become expert at varnashram. Then, then karma is covering bhakti. If you say that even in bhakti you have to do varna and ashram, you don't have to. Then karma is covering bhakti. If you say that you will not be purified by bhakti alone, simultaneously, if you say first you have to become purified by varna and ashram and then you can take up bhakti, karma is covering bhakti. If you say you have to have a simultaneous track of bhakti and varna ashram, Bhakti alone is insufficient. You are covering bhakti. Bhakti is completely free. Bhakti, bhakti has no... And we, we gave the example, I think, the other day. I'm not sure whether it was here or someplace else. That uh, Magrari the hunter, Narada Muni did not tell him to engage in any particular varna. Now, he was already in the Grahasta ashram, so he stayed in the Grahasta ashram. But Narada Muni did not give him a varna to do. He said, just sit and chant. When he gave up his hunting varna, Narada did not substitute a proper varna. He didn't say, now you have to become a vaishya, now you have to become a shudra. He just said, go chant. Just do bhakti. 
He said, well, how will I live? Because Varna is your livelihood, and Grahasta needs a Varna to live. And so Magari said, well, how will I live? You're not giving me an, a substitute occupation. Narada said, don't worry, we'll take care of you. And you have the prostitute who surrendered to Haridas Thakur, which is very interesting because she was trying to make him fall down and ruin his reputation. So that's very heavy Vaishnava Parad. It's really a very intense Vaishnava Parad. You're trying to cause somebody's fall down so you can ruin their reputation. Just imagine what kind of, we call that like a sting operation, right, the government does. So that's what she was doing. And it was just three days that she was listening to Haridas. She didn't have like some, you know, months or years of, of training. And he didn't give her either a Varna or an Ashram. He said, take your possessions, give it away to the Brahmanas and the Vaishnavas, and come and sit by Tulsi and chant. He didn't say to her, now you have to get married. Of course, in those days, I don't think she could have. I don't think the Grahasta Ashram was available to her. Uh, nowadays, that's not the case. Nowadays, whatever people's background, you know, they could get married. I mean, frankly, you know, just, just frankly. Most I, of them are integrated anyway. Exactly. I mean, I met one devotee who was, uh, we were talking about uh, dancing. I think we're talking about Bhartanatyam. And she said, well, I was also a dancer, but I wore eight-inch heels. You know how big eight-inch heels are? Mm-hmm. And I said, eight-inch heels? What kind of dancing did you do? I said, in eight-inch heels. And she said, oh, that kind of dancing. So, you know, in other words, like strip dancing. And, you know, she was in some... Just walking on the toes. Yes, yes, some prostitute situation. So, but, we're, but no, no one's going to say to her in Iskand, oh, no, 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 you, can, you have to remain single your whole life because you have this background. Uh, yes. so, but in those days, Haridas Thakur, he couldn't, didn't say to this prostitute, you're going to end, you, now you should get married. He didn't even say to her, you know, become an actual vanaprast. He did say shave, she shaved her head and she put on one cloth, but it never says that she officially entered into the renounced ashram. She was a young woman. And he didn't give her any occupation. He didn't say, now that you're not a prostitute, you should become a basket maker or a fruit seller or something like that. So he didn't give her anything in the varnas and the ashrams. Just completely in bhakti. So we see from examples like this, bhakti does not depend on having a particular varna or a particular ashram. The, the varnas and the ashrams are useful for us in so much as they help us decide how to apply the principles of bhakti to our particular situation. So when I want to say I should be dependent on the protection and the maintenance of the Lord, how that manifests will depend to a large extent on what ashram I am in. So if I'm in the Grahasta Ashram, that's probably going to manifest by I have a job, I have a business, I build some structure for for protection, I have a bank account, but I always keep in mind that Krishna is taking care of me. Is it by destiny or Lord provides all that? Is it because of your previous in previous lives that you have done something to get it a nice job or a nice company? How you separate destiny and the uh, well, the, how do you, this is always a big question, how do you separate destiny or the Lord's will and our own karma? Uh, everything, even for the non-devotees, is ultimately the will of the Lord. The system of karma is His system. So even if you say you have earned something by your karma, even then it is by the grace of God. 
Uh, this, of course, was Krishna's argument, the opposite to Nanda Maharaj. Krishna said to Nanda Maharaj, you don't need the grace of the gods, or any god, because you've simply earned. Whatever you earn by your karma is enough. You don't need any supervising agent at all. But that's not a fact. Even if you've earned, you still need... You know, I remember my husband once, uh, he was working at a, a programming contract. And at the end of the contract, he was never paid. You know, he just never got it. It wasn't that, it was like a thousand something. But he never got that money. You know, you can work and not get paid. It can happen. Even if you're working, still, somebody has to release that money to you that you've earned. Or you can work and get paid and immediately a thief takes it in the street. Yes? Yes. This happens. Right? You work and you get paid, you invest it, your investments fail. These things happen. Or you work and get paid and all of a sudden your great-great-aunt who you never heard of in your life gives you some money because she had no children. Yes? Do these things happen? So even for the non-devotee, the hand of God is there. Even if you say they're just getting what they're destined, still, even the ability to get what they're destined, the hand of God must be there. Now, once one surrenders to the Lord, the Lord takes a personal interest in our case. We, we get out of the, just the big bureaucratic files of the, you know, if you can imagine some office where the demigods are managing karma and they have everybody's files, you know? equanimity in this. He favors devotees and removes all the karma and he... No, no, it's, it's not... It, it, equanimity, of course, this is discussed in the seventh canto. But I gave you a simple example. So I, I ran a school for many years, and we had an individualized school, which meant that a student came, and we gave them a diagnostic test, and then we put them in each subject and each level according to their specific ability. Now, out in the world, in most schools, they're called, we call them factory schools. If you're eight years old, you study this. You're nine years old, you study this. And everybody open up to page 23, find problem number six, put your finger on the first word. And if you already know it, it doesn't matter. If you're lost, it doesn't matter. Everyone has to do the same thing at the same time just because you're eight years old, correct? Some student who needs extra help, too bad. They have to get it after school on their own money. Some student who could be three grades ahead, too bad. You just all have to do the same thing. But we ran a school where it was individualized. So, for the devotee, Krishna individualizes. And you can say, well, why does Krishna individualize for the devotee? And for the non-devotee, they just have to follow. Of course, it's also individualized. But they also have to follow the system. They just have to follow that system of karma. So, the reason is not partiality. The reason is that Krishna sees that the devotee has already learned some of these lessons without having to go through karma. The whole purpose of karma is to get us to understand that I am not this body, that my real enjoyment is serving God, my real enjoyment is not trying to enjoy this body, this world is not my real home. That is the purpose of karma. It is is to bring us to spirituality. If you already come to spirituality, you do not necessarily need all of those intermediate steps. You know, the good teacher will see this child already understands this, they don't need to go through the lesson. You can test out of the course. 
So becoming a devotee, it's like you're testing out of the course. You're taking the exam. So let's, let's just give an example. Let's say that somebody was a meat eater, and then they come to Krishna consciousness. So by their meat eating, their karma would be that they would have to take a birth for every hair on the body of a cow and be killed. Why? Because they didn't have any compassion. They didn't have any empathy. Therefore, they have to be put in that position and see what it's like. They come to Krishna consciousness, and in five minutes, they develop that empathy. That empathy, which by karma would have taken them 5,000 lifetimes as a cow, they got immediately. They just heard from the devotees, and immediately they got that empathy. So why should Krishna put them through the 5,000 lifetimes when they got it in another way? And when one learns, I should surrender to Krishna, I'm not this body, why should one have to go through all this experience if one has already picked up the idea? But definitely, the test that we don't pass, Krishna may say, well, all right, this you've not learned. All right, so we'll give you a little bit of the same lessons you would have gotten through the karmic system. We'll, we'll give you some token because you need some push for this, for this topic. You know, this topic, you take the exam in bhakti and you, you fail. He says, I, oh, okay. I experienced that. Yes, so Krishna will give you some scaffolding and he'll say, okay, and he may pull in something that you would have experienced by karma. So and that's not partiality. Those who are willing to, 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 to test out of classes, <laughs> those who are willing to take the exam to see if they already know the principles. So Krishna allows that. And that's open to everybody. It's not that devotee is a particular birth. You know, even if you're born in a family of devotees, you might choose not to yourself be a devotee and you're born in a family of demons, you might choose yourself to be a devotee. So that's not partiality. Open to everyone. Open to everyone. If you don't want to go through your karmic lessons, and instead you want to try for the exam, you want to try to test out. You understand testing out? Everybody understands this? You just take the exam that's at the end of the class? Or sometimes you test out by writing a paper? You write an end-of-semester paper without taking the class. You somehow demonstrate that you already have this understanding. So that is available in Krishna school to everyone. And everyone can choose, I would like to try to test out of this karma by coming to bhakti. And Krishna says, okay. And if you, you know, get an A+, plus, fine, karma's finished. If you get a C-, minus, then you may get a little bit. <laughs> you know, he's, he's custom... Uh, designing, But if you don't want to test out of the classes, what to do? Okay, go through the karmic system. You can say, I already know, I already know, but, but you're not willing to take to do the exam. Then you have to go through the... We should stop now, Prabhu. Just one question. It seems that government... Otherwise, the people who didn't go to class, they will take all the prasadam, and everyone who's in class, they will be punished by staying in the class. <laughs> we are the only ones who take prasadam. Okay, okay. Over just take 30. Okay. <laughs> it seems that government and general public they know the Vedic culture, otherwise, why they will maintain brahmacharis and schooling and yes. tired of people. Uh, exactly. So, where that knowledge came? Is it uh, from Vedic the Shastra? Or it is oh, you mean in modern society? In modern society. Why, do, why are people, why is the modern governments maintaining schools and retired people? Uh, because this is the, the scriptures were originally, the Vedic scriptures were originally all over the world. Sadaputabhu, before he died, he had been working on a book showing evidence that Vedic culture was all over the world. 
And so there's pieces of it everywhere. Just like we went to the Metropolitan Museum of Art yesterday. And Tarani said, why do the statues, why are they missing pieces? Right? Why are they missing their noses and their arms? I said, because they're old. They're very old, and when they're old, they fall, they, you know, wind damage and so many things, and whatever part sticks out tends to get knocked off. So especially the noses, almost all the statues, the noses are missing, you know, because that part sticks out from the face and the arms and the hands and sometimes the heads. And there's a lot of headless... Hmm? A lot of, a lot of heads were missing. Right, so just a head and a headless like Rahu and Ketu. And then you have, you know, the feet are cut off. So our modern society is like that. It's like a beat-up sculpture where there's all these pieces missing. So the original culture of the world, it's still there, but it's the nose is gone, you know, the hands are gone, maybe the pieces of the head have been cut off. But there's still some remnants. And this is true in every society. There's, there's you know... Most of you in this room are from India, so with all due respect, there's also pieces of Vedic culture here in America. You know, it's not that it's not that India has a monopoly on having the only pieces of Vedic culture. And again, with all due respect, there are pieces of Vedic culture missing in India. And 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 some of the missing pieces in India, my dear friends, we happen to have in America. No, I I hope I'm not offending no, any of you. No, no, but it, uh, there are certain, like Prabhupada talked about the blind man and the lame man. You know, in America we have a sense of cleanliness of public spaces that in India is just very strangely, to my way of thinking, absent. I don't understand why, why it's, it's, it's not there. You know, why is it not there? And, and somehow we bring over the Indians who are so expert in mathematics and engineering and science, and then you go to India and all the wires are all tangled and nothing is the can't get any proper so here the Indians are the electrical engineers and in India the electricity doesn't work so it's very it's very peculiar to me business and management yes so certain there's certain pieces of they, it's it's like some big sculpture that different parts of the world have different pieces and you see remnants of this culture another reason is not only that but Krishna says chaturvanna mayashistam gunakarma bibhavasa Krishna created this system. He's particularly talking about Varnas. Krishna created this system. And because it's a creation of God, it's inherent in the world. It's, it's something that's part of the world. It's like there are seasons. You know, of course, certain places, the seasons are a little different than the seasons otherwise. But this concept of division of labor, that there's specialties of division of labor, which is the whole concept of Varnas, and the different divisions of labor are meant to each help each other. They're not meant to compete with each other. They're meant to compete within their division, but they're not meant to compete with each other. The heart's not supposed to be competing with the lungs. You know, the stomach's not supposed to be competing with the brain. Right? And then the concept that there's a life cycle, which is what ashram is about. So there is a life cycle. We have different stages of life, and that's biology that's created by God. And the concept that the children and the old people should be maintained by the, the people in youth is, is also just kind of wired into biology, that the little children don't have the means to maintain themselves. And as you get older, you lose the means to maintain yourself. So this is something that's, that's wired into the system. So first of all, because the scriptures were all over the world and the culture was all over the world, and there are some remnants of that, 
but also because it's the wiring of our biology, it's the wiring of our physical and psychological nature that we each have different inclinations, different ways we want to contribute economically to, and to society, and we each have these stages in the life cycle. So the system of Varna and Ashram is take this, which is naturally part of our biology, and connect it with God. That is the system. In animal society, they maintain the little babies, yes. but not the elderly. No. Well, even the babies are most likely to get killed, though. So in the animal society, the, the members who are most likely to die are the babies, the sick, and the old. Right? Those are the ones that the wolves and the bears and the tigers are most likely to carry away. And even among the predators, those are the ones most likely to die. Yeah, there are only a few animal societies. Yes, there's only a few animal societies where they really take care. And they're, they're, they're limited. Well, you know, they don't have a medical system. What are they going to do? So if some, if some member is injured, they can lick the wound and they can stand vigil, but they really can't. They don't have the means to do anything. And I think that's a good example of if you're a human being, if you're a human being, and you don't take care, then you become an animal where you can't... Happening like, like yes. animals nowadays. Yes. So if as, if as a human being, in spite of the natural physiological and psychological and ecological systems that the Lord has done, if instead of working with those systems... You know, just like people are having abortions. That's not working with the system. That's working against the system. No, no, I'm saying in human society, people are having abortions, birth control. Instead of taking care of the children, they're killing them. That's not working with our biology, our psychology, or our environment. That's working against it. So you want to do that if you want to work against your natural biology, psychology, and the ecology then you become an animal. Become an animal and watch the tigers come eat your children. You follow? If you don't want to take care, you don't want to take care of your elderly persons, then become an animal and as soon as you get old, the tigers come eat you. This is, okay, if you you want to live like an animal and you don't want to, to work in harmony with the Lord, then fine, that facility is also available. And there, there's no sin you know, if you let your tiger mother be carried off by the wolves, it's not. You have there's no, there's no sin there, right? If your your, you know your, whatever your duck wife, if your duck wife gets carried away by an owl, you know that's not your. You weren't duty bound to protect her. So this is you know you don't want to do this. Fine, then you have this facility, where you can take these other bodies. We really do need to end now. Was, was there something else anybody else wanted to? One of the scientists. Prabhuji, we need, really need it's eight. It's eight forty. We could go on for a million years. So maybe I could ask you. Well, maybe that would be very nice. Shila Prabhupada, Kijai.